Hi everyone, this is Holly Gilbert Stowell, your host of Security Management Highlights. Thanks for tuning in to this bonus episode and be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. A gunman opened fire at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado Springs on November 27, 2015, killing three people and wounding nine others. It was the first deadly assault on a U.S. abortion provider since 2009. The man accused of the crime, Robert Louis Deere, made claims in court that suggested he was motivated by anti-abortion sentiments. But the argument about whether or not this was an act of terror, and what constitutes terrorism in the United States, surfaced in the wake of this deadly event. Bill Braniff is Executive Director of the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, or START, at the University of Maryland. He joined us to talk about this issue. START is a U.S. Department of Homeland Security Center of Excellence that looks at terrorism through different lenses and provides guidance for academics, researchers, and other practitioners on this broad issue. We started our conversation by discussing the complexity of the issue of terrorism and defining an act of terror. One thing to understand about defining acts of terrorism, and especially when you get to the realm of sorting which ideology a given attack fits under, every researcher is, is going to make the best decision for that research project, as opposed to the idea that there's some universally correct definition of which fits under what category. And so in some research projects, we'll have researchers who decide that anti-abortion attacks would fit under right-wing extremism broadly, because perhaps the majority of attackers share other ideological elements um, with other kinds of right-wing extremists. Sometimes it will be defined as a single issue, and that it really is its own uh, kind of phenomenon, because not all people who have conducted attacks against abortion share other similarities with, with different kinds of right-wing movements. And so there is no universally correct or accepted way to do that. This is unsatisfying for many who, who just want to know sort of what the answer is. And the truth is that there are many answers. It really depends on what question you're trying to answer. So Start has determined that the shooting at Planned Parenthood was a case of domestic terrorism. How did the case match the criteria of your data set for such an act? The fact that it would be domestic terrorism doesn't mean it's, it's not terrorism or it's a lesser kind of terrorism. Uh, it just means that the ideology uh, has roots in the United States and that the individuals conducting the attack were within the United States and had no intention of conducting attacks sort of outside of the United States. They didn't get material or ideological support from, from across the border. So calling it domestic terrorism in no way diminishes the kind of violence. It's just a descriptor. In this case, we would say that this is, these are acts of domestic terrorism because the anti-abortion movement has roots in the United States and the actors acted in the United States without support from outside of the United States. And this is a movement that's been around in the 1970s. We've captured 11 attacks in our global terrorism database. Uh, in the 1980s, it jumps to 89 and then peaks uh, in the 1990s at 138 attacks in the United States. And then there's a decrease in the 2000s to 19 attacks. And then in the partial decade uh, that we're currently in, we have one confirmed and then several ending that, you know, that we're sort of adjudicating right now to decide if they would meet the inclusion criteria of our, our data set. So this is a movement that really peaked in the 1990s, but has been around since the 1970s, if not earlier. That's just when the, we start collecting data in our global terrorism database. So what have other attacks on abortion clinics looked like, and how does this one compare? The recent attack against the Planned Parenthood facility is somewhat of an anomaly. If we look across the universe of all 258 attacks, dating back to 1970, only 3% were armed assaults 
another 2% were assassinations, which are differentiated only by the specificity of the target, where instead of just a gunman opening fire on anyone present at the facility, there's a specific person that they're intending to murder. So 5% of all of those attacks would involve armed assault or assassination. 75% would involve facility or infrastructure attacks, or trying to harm the clinic itself. And then we have you know, statistics uh, beyond that, things like hostage-taking, which does not happen in a significant way. It's happened once in the 1980s, and, and that's really it. So you know, this attack, the fact that it was an armed assault, is, is somewhat rare. So, Bill, why is it so difficult to track and catch these self-radicalized lone actors as opposed to, say, Islamic terrorists? The statistics that I cited, um, and I'll, I'll cite now, are not about lone actors. I just wanted to give an example of how when we place more emphasis on international uh, extremism, so plots motivated by al-Qaeda or ISIL, if we place more resources on those kinds of threats, because we, we look at the events of 9-11 or we look at the recent attacks in Paris and we say, okay, the potential loss of life is much higher, so we're going to put more resources towards them, that has consequences. And that's not a judgment. It's just a, an empirical fact. Sixty percent of the Islamist plots in the United States have been thwarted in the earliest phase of the conspiracy, which is a good thing. But if we look at, for example, just by comparison, the far-right movement in the United States, and again, that's a basket term um, for many different sub-ideologies. But if we look at the far-right cases in the United States, we see that 61% of far-right attackers successfully kill or injure someone. And you can see that difference, right? 60% are thwarted in the earliest phase of the Islamist side. 61% are successful on the far-right side. And so, you know, this, I think, has to do with threat perception. I think it has to do also with numbers. Frankly, there are many fewer Muslim extremists in the United States in total numbers than there are members of far-right movements. And so we are able to identify and allocate resources to Islamist individuals in the United States who have espoused radical ideas online, uh, oftentimes making general threats or supporting violence against innocent civilians. We can identify them, therefore we can put them under surveillance. And because the numbers are relatively lower, it's a more manageable task, even if it still exceeds our law enforcement capability to put everybody under surveillance. On, on the far right side, I've, I've heard a pithy quote that you know there are more members of the Aryan nation in prison in Arizona than there are al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan and Pakistan. You know, when those numbers just get so large and the nature of the violence tends to be ones and twos, not only ones and twos, as we, you know, we saw with things like the, the Oklahoma City bombing, but the average attack are more isolated incidents against you know one or two people. It just doesn't warrant the same attention or the same allocation of resources, but that has consequences. We have a larger movement that's more successful and is injuring and killing more people than the Islamist terrorist movement in the United States if you exclude the attacks of 9-11. And of course, you, you can't exclude the attacks of 9-11. You can't ignore the fact that that happened and that that's in the realm of possibility. And so this puts law enforcement and security professionals in a really difficult position where, you know, do they allocate resources to guard against the most dangerous potential threat or the most likely potential threat? And it appears, just empirically, that we've put more resources towards the more dangerous threat in terms of the, the consequences of a single attack consequences that we're having more frequent lethal and and violent attacks successfully conducted by a far right. Yes, that's definitely something our readers as security practitioners are always trying to balance, going after the more plausible threat or the most deadly, and which one to focus their limited resources on. So thank you for touching on that. I wanted to ask you, 
how does Stark classify these anti-abortion acts? Is it right-wing extremism? Is it just looked at as a single issue? How do you go about defining that? We have a data set that looks at individual-level radicalization in the United States, and we look at cross-ideologies. And what we found is that no one radicalization theory explains uh, the majority of, of cases in any one ideological movement or across the whole sample. And so what I mean is that there are scholars who say, really, this is about recruitment. And it turns out recruitment does explain some cases, but it doesn't certainly explain the majority. Others say this is really about social movement theory, the idea that, that groups like al-Qaeda or groups like KKK put these ideas out there, they package them in, in music, they package them in videos, propaganda videos, or in online magazines. And these ideas find their way into the minds of, of vulnerable individuals who are easily persuaded to adopt them and then act out on those ideas. There are others that say, well, this is about group. This is about a small number of guys getting together in, the, in a room and stirring themselves up, up into a frenzy and then conducting some kind of, of antisocial, you know, counterculture kind of violence. And, and again, all of these theories are, have some utility in explaining radicalization to violence. None of them explain all of the cases or the majority of the cases. What this means as security professionals is that we really have to understand all the different potential pathways. And then as community members and as soccer coaches and siblings and parents and professionals in the workplace, we have to have an awareness of what the different potential indicators are for any of these kinds of pathways. And if we see something that makes us uncomfortable, we, we really need to be able to confront these individuals or if it's really alarming, notify law enforcement for criminal justice intervention. But there needs to be uh, some sort of mechanism in place so that if an individual starts to espouse support for violent ideas, that there's some intervention mechanism that we can put into place. And we can borrow from other fields. We do this now with suicide prevention. Suicide is a very taboo topic, but today we know that if someone says something like, I, I don't know if I can go on any longer, the right response is to, is to ask them about it. Are you thinking about suicide? Are you thinking about killing yourself? We know how to do these interventions now. We could also look at things like HIV interventions or alcohol and drug interventions. In the school system, we have targeted violence intervention programs now where counselors and psychologists and teachers can form these multidisciplinary teams if a student makes an offhand threat about conducting you know, a firearms attack in school like the Columbine attack. And we really need to now apply this to violent extremism. And it's not just about Muslim extremism. The same would be true for individuals like Bill and Roof, who talked about targeting African-Americans before murdering people in, in an African-American church, or uh, as people who talk about taking revenge against Planned Parenthood facilities or other kinds of facilities. These threats should be taken seriously, but we need somewhere to go when once we hear these threats, some, some sort of process to put in place. They could try to conduct an intervention before it becomes a criminal justice situation, at which point there's no real, there's no real good outcome. Yes, and all of that you just touched on really goes back to vigilance, which is so important for security professionals. That basic concept of see something, say something, whether it's your coworker or a friend or you know somebody that you walk by on the street, it's important to keep your eyes open and to try to prevent. Sure. And, and I think that comes in, in different forms, right? There, there are videos that are available, things um, like the video created by the Minneapolis Police Department, quick YouTube video that shows some of the behavioral indicators of a potential plot. These are things like someone pretending to be somebody they're, they're not in order to, to ask questions about the security protocols at your workplace. Individuals uh, taking photographs of things that aren't that interesting and, and, and worthy of photographs, like structural design of a bridge or a building. 
there are those behavioral indicators. This is akin to the See Something, Say Something campaign or the National Suspicious Activity Reporting Initiative. And so there's lots of resources out there that employers can use to raise awareness within their staff of some of the, the behavioral indicators. There are also, however, some ideological indicators. And this is what makes us all very uncomfortable because none of us want to be the thought police. Um, that's not particularly American way to, to go about security. And people are allowed to you know, disagree with the government, disagree with foreign policy, uh, disagree with domestic policy. And in fact, that's what makes a democracy vibrant. But when people start talking about aspects of ideology that legitimate the use of violence, of criminal violence, we have to do something. Right. It's one thing to support the idea that the Assad regime in Syria would be overthrown. It's an entirely different thing to talk about joining a terrorist organization in order to do it. That's a federal crime. Domestically, there is um, a good and vibrant debate that should happen over issues like abortion or issues like immigration. But when someone starts talking about vigilante acts of violence or makes offhand remarks about those things, those are things that have to be addressed you know, in the workplace or at home or in schools. And that's very difficult, right? Law enforcement, other government actors, the Constitution really prohibits them from taking actions in some of these cases. But friends and family and, and coworkers often can have these conversations and try to ferret out um, if there's a real issue. Well, Bill, thank you for joining us and shedding more light on this important issue. Thank you for having us.